All right, Isaiah chapter 2 starts on page 567 of your pew Bible, and we are going to go straight through it, as opposed to what we just heard read a moment ago, which was a little bit out of order. The reason that I had that reading be a little bit out of order was mainly so that at the Saturday night service, where I do a little tiny sermonette on each piece, kind of like I do for the other readings. I don't do a full sermon up here in the pulpit. I do a little sermonette on each piece. I wanted to have it laid out in a nice law, then gospel structure. That is, I wanted the bad news first and the good news second. But that's not how Isaiah does it. This is not how he does it. Now, uh, to, to kind of see this, let's zoom out for a second. And remember, we're on our path through Isaiah chapter 1 through 12, and that there's a structure here. There's a format that Isaiah has set up, and there's two kind of pillars in the format. Chapter 1 is an introduction to the whole theme of the whole book. Chapter 6 is Isaiah recounting his call to being sent to Judah to preach by God, seeing him enthroned in heaven. And the thing he's supposed to know while he preaches is that most people aren't going to listen to him. Then on the other side of chapter six, you have chapters two through five and chapters seven through 12. And these serve as their own little nuggets. They're their own little structures. Okay. And we're going to get into this as we go forward. But this week, we then have the first part of its own little segment, chapter 2 through 5. And that section has two sections in it, chapters 2 through 4, and then chapter 5. Chapter 5 kind of sits apart. It's called the Song of the Vineyard. And and we'll get there in a little while. But uh, chapters 2 through 4, then, is its own section. And that section runs like this. Good news Lots of bad news. A little bit of good news. You got to get all the way to chapter four, though, before you get that little bit of good news. And next week, we're going to do chapter three and four together. But this week now, again, we're going to start with this amazing good news. This incredible picture of the salvation that God has planned for his people. And then just as you're getting your, your, your lips wet, just as you're getting hungry for it, It's going to be taken away, and it's going to go and just lambast the pride and arrogance of man and state how God has no intention of withholding his wrath at all. So what do we do with this as Lutherans? I mean, they taught us at the seminary, I'm supposed to figure out what it says about your sin, and I'm supposed to figure out what it says about Jesus, and I'm supposed to tell you that, Here's your sin. Here's Jesus. Go home. Be happy. I don't think that's bad, but but it's not what Isaiah is doing. Why is Isaiah doing what he's doing? Yeah, especially remember, we already learned this. This is in the days of Uzziah and then probably um, his son, Jotham, who is a faithful king. Yeah, but his son, Ahaz, is going to be an unfaithful king. And as an unfaithful king, you're going to find out that a lot of the people wanted to be unfaithful with him. So even though Jotham is a good king, under the surface is boiling idolatry. 
And even the good kings of Israel, almost all of them are unable to remove something that the Old Testament just calls the high places. Now, what are the high places? Okay, so the worship in ancient Israel was like this. You're supposed to go to the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is, and that's the only place you're supposed to go for worship. Nowhere else, just one spot on the whole planet. That's a little bit of travel time. I got a game to watch this weekend. Yeah. And so, well, there's a local guy up on the hill. He does sacrifices to Jesus there. I'll just go up there and make my offerings to Jesus. Oh, yeah, he does sacrifices to Baal too, but I, I make my offerings to Jesus. That's the high places. It's, it's, a, it's a commingling. It's, it's a hodgepodge of religion that's local and easy to get to, and all your friends and neighbors are there. They've got a great potluck afterwards. And these things are a, a thorn in the flesh of Judea and Israel to the level where they start in the corners, but by the time the bad kings are really in charge, what's going on in the high places are going on in the temple. And at that point, Jesus, God, is effectively going to say to them, okay, fine, you don't want me, you want Baal, you can have Baal, I'm, I'm gone. And as soon as he withdraws his hand, guess what comes in is the wrath, right? Now, then chapter 2 is going to be talking about this idea without, it doesn't mention high places, um, but it's just going to mention all of the trust that the people are putting in themselves, in their, their own confidence, in their own ability to be great on their own. And as we'll see as we move forward, this is all going to get taken away from them very quickly by the armies of Assyria. Right? Again, that'll be chapter 7, 8, 9, a little bit there. Okay, so, but... We start out, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. The word of Isaiah, that, or, excuse me, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So chapters 2 through 5, it's all about Judah and Jerusalem. He's talking to Uzziah's kingdom, probably I should say Joram's kingdom. And then he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Okay, pause. Isaiah didn't write that. Isaiah quoted it. Now, it's possible he's quoting it from Micah. And it's possible that both he and Micah are quoting it from some other prophet that we don't have written. But what's pretty clear is that at least Micah got it out first. And now Isaiah is quoting this in part to say, yes, that's true. But again, in a few moments, he's going to say, but you don't believe it. And that's where all the condemnation is going to come from. Okay. So I want you to see that this is like, it's kind of like Isaiah's preaching on a text. He's going to read the text first. And the text is going to be all about how great it's going to be. And then the sermon is going to be all about how, no, 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 not for you. Now, gird up your loins here a little bit, my friends, because, you know, don't hear me saying, no, no, not for you when we get there. St. Paul Lutheran Church, we desire to be a remnant of the faith that is not swept away with the chaos when it comes, whenever that may be. Uh, but the part of that then means we're going to hear this as Isaiah preached it. And when he says repent, we're going to say, amen, I repent. Uh, now, again, the text he's going to preach on is a quote from probably Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. You can look it up later. You compare, compare them to each other. It's, it's dead on. They're the same text. Okay, But it is about these latter days, it says. The end of the world, it says. 
which is distinct a little bit from the day of the Lord. I'll come back and pick up day of the Lord when we get to it a little bit later. But latter days, it would certainly seem by the end of this section, it is about paradise. It's about the world where everything is the way it's supposed to be again. And that paradise begins with the mountain of the house of Jesus, that's Mount Zion in Jerusalem, being established as higher than any mountain on the planet. Now, we're going to hear about the mountains of Bashan here in a, in a couple of moments. The mountains of Bashan, if you can kind of imagine that the Israel is right here and um, the Dead Sea is here and Jordan River, Sea of Galilee up over here. The mountains of Zion are right around here on the west side of the Jordan. And they're mountains, they're big, but, but you can walk over them in a day, okay? Um, now, up northeast of the Jordan, you have another mountain range, the mountains of Bashan. And, and those mountains are much bigger. I mean, they're not the Rockies, <laughs> uh, but, but they're much bigger. And so the idea that Mount Zion will be higher than the mountains of Bashan, this is like, like geographically, geologically impossible. It can't be. Even an earthquake is not really going to do this. Maybe a worldwide flood might do something like that to the, to the landscape. Right? Uh, so, so what does this mean? Well, it means there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth is what it means. And in the new earth where we dwell with Jesus, there's going to be one giant mountain and his city is going to be on top of it. And we're going to go there often. I think that is indeed what it means. But it also means something else. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. But this is a key idea. The entire new heavens and new earth is inside the body of Jesus right now. It's all going to come from him. It's already there, though. He's the firstborn of the new creation. And so the day that Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb is the day that Mount Zion became taller than all the mountains of the earth. Because in the body of Jesus, it already was. And by the way, then he ascended, right? Highest, highest of heavens there, far above any mountain you could imagine. See how many layers we're already working on? Yeah? There's going to be layers within layers as you read the prophets. Okay? And I'll come back to that idea of, of how you kind of look at that in a moment. But, so latter days, yeah? paradise. God's mountain is the only mountain, the highest mountain established, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it. That's the Gentiles. Remember that beautiful verse from Matthew 28 where he says, go into all nations, baptizing and teaching them, right? And then they come to where? Jesus, to the mountain, yeah? to the body of Christ in the flesh and blood, which is that, we, that which you eat in the altar. Uh, I said that poorly. To the body of Jesus Christ in the bread and wine that you eat in the sacrament of the altar. The nations, that's you, are going to come to it. So, so this prophecy is coming true already. Even though then on that very last day, When our bodies are raised from the dead and we're gathered to the white throne judgment, we will all exactly walk to the mountain of the Lord, right? So see the layers again, the the typology or the echoing greater fulfillment that keeps coming. On that same day, they shall say, many people shall come and say, verse 3, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Again, this is already taking place. This morning, maybe you got up alone and came, but if you didn't get up alone, I bet you said to someone, it's time to go, or we need to get in the car, or maybe it was, should we go to church today? I hope that's not what you said, because the answer is yes. 
right? Always. But, but you said, let's go to church today. Well, that is to say, let's go up to the mountain of Jesus where he will teach us his ways. This has already begun and is never going to end. The day which comes when Jesus returns will only increase and beautify this so that instead of having to drag yourself out of bed with an alarm clock, you're going to feel the sun. Well, it won't be the sun. You're going to feel the light of Jesus on your face. You're going to wake up and say, oh, it's the day the Lord has made. And you're going to run out. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go up to Mount Zion. Yeah. It's a beautiful picture that's being painted here. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Don't think law and gospel right there. Think Torah. Think the Bible. Think the word of God. Think everything that God has ever said. From Jesus, that teaching shall go out to all nations and already has. Yeah, And it's going to draw us into himself so that he shall, verse 4, judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Now that again is, now he does that. When he comes and he forgives your sins. He's judging you when he forgives your sins. He's deciding the dispute. And yeah, on the last day, anyone who doesn't want the forgiveness of sins, they can have the judgment really come. And anyone who's got an accusation is going to bring it, and then they're going to get eternal punishment for it. So see the overlap of now, but not yet. Yeah. But now this beautiful language about, really, this is the not yet. This is what is to come. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a beautiful, beautiful dream. To live a life in which there is no threat to you. No story of threat, no possibility of threat, that everything would be good for generation to generation, forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful dream. What a beautiful promise. Those days are coming, he says. And again, I've made the case that those days are here in a forecasting kind of way all the way through this. And let me suggest to you that Christians indeed are people of peace that we prefer peace to war. Christians are not barbarians. We don't want to just take people's things. We don't think that's good. We would prefer to live at peace with our neighbors. But as David says in the Psalms, I speak for peace, but but they speak for war. We still live in an age where nation rises against nation and they fight over who gets to be in charge of all the mammon and eventually one of them collapses or maybe both of them. And so, yeah, swords are still necessary. And so if you are a Christian and you have a sword, you don't need to go home and beat it into a plowshare today. In fact, uh, I, let me kind of uh, try to do this violence thing here um, in just a moment. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But it's, it's very important that Christians don't think violence is something that's bad by itself. Right. Now, I'll give you an example that's just impossible to avoid. Right. When you go to the store, and you go into the aisle where you're going to buy some red meat or some white meat, whatever you're going to buy, the only way that got there was by violence. There was a living animal that ate some food out of the ground, and we took it and we killed it. We cut it up, and we put it in a refrigerator, added some red dye to make it look fresh, and then put it out on the shelf. So violence is unavoidable for survival. This is why we have police officers. And I know there's a whole movement out there to get rid of them. I think that's a little 
a little weird. And most of the cities that are doing that, it's not going so well if you look at the crime rates. But, but the reason we have police officers is because there's such a thing as good violence. And good violence is when you're stopping the bad violence and you're using the sword to stop it. Right? So a Christian can be a police officer. A Christian can serve in the military. A Christian can be a, a judge or a lawyer. Yeah? Or uh, what is it when a doctor cuts you open to do surgery? I mean, it's not peace. <laughs> yeah. So there's a place for violence. There's definitely a place for violence when a father needs to defend his family. But the dream and the promise is there's coming a day where there won't need to be this anymore. And we're people who prefer that. So don't, we, we don't want the violence, but, but neither do we fear doing what is right. So that's, that's kind of my little mini sermon on violence there. Okay, but let's get back to the text. So the day is coming where you're going to get a take your AR-15 and beat it into a flower pot or whatever, right? There, there won't be a need for thermonuclear weaponry or what new, the new stealth bomber. All of that will be turned into just planter boxes and art. Now, that day is coming. Now, that is the end of the quote from Micah or whatever other prophet Micah and Isaiah are both quoting. And you have verse 5 that's unique to Isaiah where he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He said, let's believe this. But now verse 6, he's going to say, well, let's just read it. Uh, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they shake, excuse me, they strike hands with the sons, the children of foreigners. Um, so here's the shift, right? And notice that it goes from a, a let's talk about the to let's talk about you. And you is God. So there's a moment of prayer. That's going to vanish pretty quick. There's a moment of prayer, right? I want to talk about the day of the world, which is to come and how great it is. Come on, let's talk about that. But you, God, have rejected them because they don't believe it. And instead, they're filled with, it says, things from the east. Just think high places. Think idols. Think mysticism. He, he says next, the fortune tellers like the Philistines, those who practice witchcraft and magic. Yeah. And then shaking hands with the sons of foreigners, this is to say that they are willing to uh, partner with those uh, who do not believe in Jesus. Yeah. I'm not saying you can't go out and buy some food at the supermarket from someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. But in the old covenant, that was actually the law. You were to stay within the community. And they're not doing it. They're they're becoming friends with those who don't believe. And that is something. Can you have a friend who doesn't believe? Yes. If you spend all your time with a friend who doesn't believe, how is that going to impact you? What if you don't spend any time with friends who do believe? How is that going to impact you? As iron sharpens iron. You are, the, you are the result of the people you spend the most time with. Yeah. And so again, the idea of just living with the foreigner, living with the one who doesn't believe, and just letting them tell you what they think all the time, not wise. Not wise. Might lead you to doing things like well, going to fortune tellers and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I, I, I don't know. I have time for this. I remember when I was first called into the, into the ministry and I was at a pastor's conference, first pastor's conference I've ever been at, it's out in New Jersey. And I'm sitting at the table with these, these older pastors that are there, mostly older pastors by, you know, at that point for me, like 30, 40 years older than me. And, and they're all in New Jersey at the time. They're all ex-Seminex guys. So they're all 
kind of classical liberals. They don't really believe the Bible's true, even though they're LCMS. Can you believe it? They, yeah, 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 LCMS. They don't really believe the Bible's true. They believe in Jesus. He's God, but, but you know, Jonah, nah, not really. Anyway, so I'm just talking about what I think. And I said something along the lines of, there's so many pagans out in the world today. And I just meant unbelievers, really what I meant. Um, but I remember when I got up and walked away, I heard one of the guys, his hearing aid must have not been working quite right because he spoke a little louder than he meant to, right? You've, you've been in those situations before, right? And he goes, he actually thinks there's pagans. And I remember just walking away and being like, have you been to Barnes and Noble? Have you gone into the religion section? Have you seen how there's more books on witchcraft than on Christianity? Yes, there's pagans. And at the fortune tellers, when you see them driving by the street, they got their little shops set up everywhere, pinwheels and whatever. Huh. Witchcraft, worship of demons, pursuing dark things, Ouija board, it's here in abundance now. And so hear this when God says, you know, they strike their hands and deals with foreigners. Hear this as like, beware, Christians. You're living in a time that isn't 1982. And even then, it probably wasn't as good as you thought if you were looking under the covers. Yeah. Just like Isaiah's time. When up high, they're talking good, but down low, it smells a little rotten. All right. So, but down low, it smells rotten. It hasn't ruined their lives. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold. Their bank account's doing fine. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. We don't really do the horses things anymore, but I mean, you know, the new vehicles. We got all the things that we need. Everything looks fine, right? Their land is filled with idols, he says. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their fingers have made. Now, idolatry is something that I'm not sure I even understand idolatry. I can't imagine setting up a golden statue and asking it for stuff. I really can't. And that's what they did sort of back then. And then you've got kind of the Lutheran take on this, which isn't wrong, which is that an idol is a matter of the heart. So whatever you fear, love, and trust more than God, well, that would be your idol. And in that way, we can all find out that we do have idols. Like, you, you can't avoid having idols. But, but God in, in the Bible seems to really care a little bit more than just that you might have a heart problem. He cares about what you actually do. And idolatry, as it's forbidden, when St. John at the end of 1 John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, he doesn't mean have your heart be perfect. He means instead, see where you might be worshiping the works of your hands. Hmm? I I think the the almighty dollar, as they call it, that's a fair idol then, isn't it? Personally, for myself, along with the dollar, I think the thing I have worshipped the most in my life is the, uh, the mythology of the United States of America. Believing that we are different, that we're somehow better, that we're filled with righteousness. Maybe we were once upon a time. But again, look around. Look at what they're doing to little boys and little girls. We're not better. We're worse. 
Uh, one of my friends said it this way recently, I can't be a conservative anymore. There's nothing going on I want to conserve. Huh. Interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah. So again, idolatry. It's, it's a difficult concept. And I, I have to say this. It is tied to pictures. When God forbids the making of idols, the making of statuary, it's, it's saying something about our inability to not give a picture more credit than it's due. So even when I tell you, like, that, you know, I say the United States of America, you imagine a picture right away in your head. You see something, right? And that thing, that symbol, that image is the thing you perhaps trust in more than you should. It's not wrong to serve your country. It is, it is foolish to trust your country. As a Christian, the Bible is very clear. Why would you trust princes? Don't trust in princes. Yeah, they're, they're mostly liars and thieves. And it's pretty hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so not many of you will be from them, Paul says. Yeah? So again, idolatry, it's tied to pictures. The power of the television screen these days, I mean, golly, it gets you to do whatever it tells you to do, doesn't it? So I'm not saying your TV is an idol, but I am saying that for a non-Christian, yes, it is. Do this sometime. When you're driving home at night, just glance at the houses right and left and see how many have lights on and how many just have blue lights on, shining on the inside. And then imagine that they're all not Christians and then ask, what is this thing that we're doing I'm not saying a Christian can't watch TV. I'm saying that a non-Christian, when they watch TV, can't not make an idol of it. Because that's what we do by nature. Yeah. Start the gears turning a little bit. Just, just ponder, how are you going to be different? How are you going to defend your mind and your heart? Uh, their land is filled with idols. Yeah, verse 8. They bow down to the work of their hands, what their fingers have made. Verse 9, so man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Wow, that's pretty rough, right? Um, so the idea of man being humbled and brought low, it's like when the pain comes, we have earned the pain. When God withdraws his hand of protection and lets things get really bad, it's just because we deserve it. But then that bit, do not forgive them, that's a bit weird, isn't it now? I mean, isn't Jesus the one who on the cross says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? Yes, he said that too. They're both true in their own way. On the final day, when you stand righteous and justified in your glorious new body, singing hallelujah to the Lamb, he's going to throw all unbelievers into the pit of fire that is called hell, and you're going to say, Father, do not forgive them. Hallelujah. Punish them forever. Glorious day. Now, that's hard. That's a hard thought. I'm not telling you that was easy for me to think or feel. I don't feel it, honestly. But I know it's what the scriptures say. Now, it's easier if I think the devil. Because the devil's not going to be forgiven. And he is our ancient evil foe. And all the demons are wicked beasts who just desire our destruction. So yeah, Father, don't forgive them. Send them away. A lot easier there. But what do you do with the humans who are aligned with the demons? And want to stay there. And think the demons are good and God is bad. Eh? That's where the issue is. And that's what the fortune tellers are doing. Eh? Verse 10 on the next page. He starts to kind of shout to all the people. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. 
It's not quite mocking, but it is a little bit. It's kind of like, yeah, go and hide. Go try to stop it. See if you can stop God from finding you. Because here's what's going to happen. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Okay, day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is a prophetic idea. It really starts with the prophets. It's not so much a Deuteronomy or a King David idea. And the day of the Lord in the prophets largely is the prophet saying that what God said in Deuteronomy would happen, which is that you're going to fall away, Israel, and have to be kicked out of the land, that that day is coming. It's closer now than when you first entered the land. And that day is going to burn like an oven, and it's going to bring all sorts of pain and suffering. And then the prophets also say, he is going to bring you back. That day of him kicking you out of the land is only so that he can bring you back to the land. And that whole thing is a picture of how we fell out of paradise and his plan is to bring us back into paradise through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so in that way, the day of the Lord, which is the day of wrath, also becomes the day on which he brings you back. And the prophets talk this way. There's more than one day of the Lord, but there's only one day of the Lord, the day of judgment and the day of salvation. And all the times the prophets talk about this, they have something very specific in mind in history, like the day that Jerusalem fell. I mean, that really is a big part of it, the day that Jerusalem fell. But all of it also culminates in the day that everything is destroyed in the body of Jesus Christ. So you got this language about the sun turning to darkness. Yeah, the day Jerusalem fell, the sun didn't turn to darkness, I don't don't think. But, But the day that Jesus died, it sure did. So it's all leading to Jesus the day of the Lord being his death, but then three days later, the day of the Lord being his resurrection. In fact, now we worship on Sundays, and we used to call it the Lord's day. Right? That's today, the day of the Lord. Yeah. And as we said a little bit ago with First Thessalonians, Paul's pretty clear, there's also the day of the Lord, which is the last day. But then can you see how the day of the cross, the day of resurrection, that was the last day. It just, time kept going for some reason after the last day started. And, and so here, I'm going to give you an analogy, a picture that, that is the best I can do on this. And it's not complete. It's not perfect. But if you can think of all prophecy as being like a mountain, and you're standing in the plain looking at the mountain, or I should say the prophets are standing in the plain looking at the mountain. But as history goes forward, as time goes forward, and you go up that mountain, you hit a peak. But it's not the actual top of the mountain, even though from a distance it kind of looked like it was. But you hit that peak and then you got to go down a little bit again and you come up and there's another peak. It's not the top either. But from a distance it looked like it was. And so now here we are living at a time where all the peaks have been hit except the last one. And we're kind of down in a little valley between the ascension of Jesus, the day of the Lord, and the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord. In this little valley, there's some ups ups and downs too, as nation rise against nation and kingdom compete against kingdom. And there's all sorts of stories and wars and rumors of wars. And these are but the beginnings of the birth pains, as Jesus says. But we do know that that final day is coming, even though the day was completed when he said it is finished on the cross. All right, so there's second mini sermonette on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord then for Isaiah specifically nearby is Jerusalem's going to fall. Jerusalem's going to fall. 
because it has to, because it's rejected God. Yeah. Now, jumping ahead in the story, even though Isaiah is saying this is going to happen no matter what, Hezekiah is going to come along and repent, and all the people with him. And so even though a lot of Judah is going to be destroyed by that point, Jerusalem won't fall then. Just a couple generations later, though, yeah, Jerusalem is going to fall. Yeah. So we looked at this text or heard this text read a little bit ago, verse 12 and following. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Jerusalem's going to fall. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. Judgment day is still coming for everybody else. Yeah. That's all right there in that verse. And then he gets kind of specific with some images. He's going to bring down the high things, though. Think of it. Everything that is up and lofty and powerful, it's going to be proven to be not as great as you thought it was. So against the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Well, cedar, still to this day, it's kind of the best wood you can get. If you want to build something solid that lasts a long time, you build it in cedar. Yeah. And Lebanon, which was Syria and Damascus, they had forests of this stuff. And at this time, Syria and Damascus are threatening Israel. And so it is a little bit of a, a sucker punch at their enemies. Your enemies are going to be taken down. Same also with the oaks of Bashan. Uh, Bashan is on the northeast. We mentioned those mountains earlier. It's on the northeast side of the Jordan. And it's the former kingdom of Og. When Joshua and the people of Israel come out of the, the wilderness, they fight against Og, king of Bashan, and they, they kill him. Um, and yet Bashan continues to be a place which is an image of the enemies of God. So again, verse 13, anyone who's standing against God is a, his enemy, going to be brought down. All the lofty mountains, remember Bashan had those lofty mountains, all the uplifted hills, but now also every high tower and every fortified wall. Now, in these days, you probably don't build fortified walls around your house or high towers to shoot arrows from. But the idea here is just defense systems. Everything you have that you think will defend you, God's going to break through it at some point. Jerusalem, yeah, mankind, judgment day. Against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft, think the World Trade Center and the New York Stock Exchange. It's about markets. It's about getting what you want. It's about I'm going to go to Walmart and I'll get what I need cheap and easy. You know what? All of that's taken away too. Again, Jerusalem, yeah. the value of it on the day of the cross, and then finally on Judgment Day. Because all of this is about what we would trust in. Remember, it's idolatry. The things you put your trust in. All the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 18, and the idols shall utterly pass away. Again, when Jerusalem is destroyed, there were no idols left. When Jesus died, he ended idolatry once and for all. When Jesus comes again, he won't even be able to be tempted by it. Yeah. But when Jerusalem was destroyed, it was pretty rough. Verse 19, the people shall enter caves of the rocks and holes of the ground. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. And people were fleeing the city as the armies of Babylon came. They were starving. They were trying to escape. And many of them, most of them did not. That also then is a picture of Judgment Day. No one can hide from Judgment Day. 
They'll say to the rocks, fall on us and cover us, but they won't be able to. You can't get away from God when he wants to find you. Verse 20, in that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Same idea I just said, but a little more explicit. So the, the image here is that you got a guy who's living in his house and he's got a little statue of Baal on, on his home altar. And Baal is like a golden cow, like literally, okay? He's got a little statue of Baal and he's got uh, over on the side here, he's got a chest full of silver and gold. All the planks of his home are made of cedar. He's checking over his receipts from all the shipments of spices that are going to come in from Tarshish. And then he hears someone breaks in and says, Babylon is at the gates. We need to get out of the city right now. And so he grabs his silver and gold and he grabs his golden cow and he starts running. And they manage to get out of the gates, but they're being pursued by a host. There's a small platoon of troops. They're chasing them as they run up into the mountains. And he can't get fast enough because this dark darn cow in his hand is so heavy. So he throws it aside and there on the side, there's a mole on the ground right where he ran by it and a bat's flying overhead in this wasteland wilderness that no one would ever expect to find it. But he doesn't need the golden cow. He needs his life right now. He's got to get up to that cave and hide. So he drops it there with the animals and off he goes into the cave to hide because he's trying to get away from God. But the thing is, he doesn't. But now what good is that idol to him? That's the point. What did it do for him then? It was just in his way. Yeah. And so that's, again, the question for you. Whatever you've been convicted of this morning, I listed all possibility kinds of idols. We all have them, as Lutherans well know, but also the matters of the heart are different than the matters of your hands. And learning to say to those things which you give too much attention to, no, I won't do that anymore. That's an important thing, right? Ask yourself, what good is it to me? What value does it bring to my life to to worship this thing and learn to set it aside. Yeah. Verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? That's supposed to make you a little bit afraid, right? None of us are able to stand against God's judgment when it comes. And in this life, like put aside your, I'm forgiven, I'm going to stand on judgment day for a moment. You are, you're forgiven. You're going to stand on judgment day. But in this life, if you do evil, it's going to blow back on you. Uh, did I mention this earlier? It was the last service. If you spend all your time talking to a fool, guess what you're going to become? If you spend all your time listening to fools, guess what you're going to be? Huh? What account is man? Why would you let fools tell you how to think and how to live? Why would you not instead go to the source and font of wisdom, which is the, the king of glory, the king of peace, Jesus Christ and his word? That's why you're here. You said this morning, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us. And here he is teaching you. And what he's teaching you is idolatry is very real. And idolatry has significant consequences in this life and the next. And that when idolatry gets too bad in any place, God proves its weakness by tearing it all down. And that certainly happened to Jerusalem. And you, you make the call for yourself. Is that happening to Western civilization? I mean, I, I don't know how you can say it's not. 
So what do we do? Where do we turn? Do we try to cover it up and hide in the rocks? No. No, we flee to the mountain. We flee to the temple. We flee to the Ark of the Covenant. And like Hezekiah, we pray, Jesus, spare us, have mercy. Jesus, we want to beat our swords into plowshares. Jesus, we want to see that great day. And again, as Christians living at this time, this text is written for us not to assume that we're going to get the worst, but to repent and believe in the God who saves, who saves in this life and the next. Right? Believe in the God who has already done the work of the day of the Lord, so you might walk under grace and not under wrath. But even when you find wrath in your life, you know that is but the discipline of the Lord, bringing you back like a curb into the way that you ought to go. And so rejoicing a little bit. I mean, have you, can, you, can you have that moment this morning where you see all this bad and you're kind of like, well, whew, that's about us a little bit. But you know what? I'm really glad he said that. Because I know who my God is and he's not a golden cow. He's not a golden cow. He's not a bank account. He's not a flag. He's not an iron chariot that I drive around. All those things which I find my heart trusting in so much, they're not my actual God. They're not. They're not yours either. Right? You're here. You're going to feast on Jesus. You know where to go. Uh, what are you going to do with it when you walk out? In the name of Jesus. Amen.